Ephesians. Amen. It was a good, a good series, an awesome series. So uh, just kind of filling the gap this morning. And, um, I was, you know, I was really praying this week about uh, what God wanted us to hear. And uh, I was just drawn um, to the book of Luke. But uh, before we get to that, has anyone, um, anyone, a few of you have probably heard of the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew? It's a long, long sermon. So I, believe, I bet when Jesus preached it, it was probably like hours and hours and hours of preaching. And when the disciples wrote it down, it was condensed to a, a much, shorter, um, much shorter sermon just to kind of pick out the highlights. But if you were to read through the Sermon on the Mount, it's three chapters in the book of Matthew. And I'm not giving you this introduction because I'm going to go through the whole Sermon on the Mount. But we'll get to what I'm getting to. So um, the Sermon on the Mount actually has a little brother in the book of Luke. And it's called the Sermon on the Plain. Um, Do any of you have, anybody here have a little brother? A few of you have little brothers, right? Okay. Um, Assuming that your little brother is not here, what are some words that you might use to describe a little brother? Anybody? Derelict. <laughs> nice. Anything else? No? Well, some of you might know, I actually come from a pretty large family. I have 10 siblings, so there's 11 of us in total. So I do actually have some little brothers of my own. And uh, if I was going to describe my little brothers, I would say they're, well, a few of them, not all of them. They're tough as nails. They don't mess around. They say what they mean. And they mean what they say. And uh, here's a mental image you might have in your head. If there's a, be a picture of a little brother up on the screen in a minute. Kind of the fists up, ready to fight, in your face little guy, right? Ready to get down and dirty. So you have that image in your head. That's actually kind of a really good description of the Sermon on the Plain when you compare it to its big brother, the Sermon on the Mount. It's much shorter, smaller. It's in your face. It says pretty much everything that the Sermon on the Mount says, but in a much shorter, condensed version. Um, the interesting thing is, you know how, if any of you are little brothers, I also have an older brother, so um, I never, ever had my own clothes. It was always hand-me-downs. I never had my own bike. I pretty much never had anything of my own. It was all hand-me-downs, um, a smaller, condensed version. And just like that, the Sermon on the Plain kind of doesn't even get its own full chapter in the book of Luke. It's just a very condensed, smaller version. So, um, and, it, and Luke put it really kind of plain and simple for us. So if you've got your Bibles, if you want to turn to Luke chapter 6, and Luke is probably about uh, four-fifths of the way through your Bible, uh, in chapter 6, and we're going to start by looking at verses uh, 20 to 26. And this is, what, uh, this is what Luke said. Then Jesus turned to his disciples and said, God blesses you who are poor, for the kingdom of God is given to you. God blesses you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. God blesses you who weep now, for the time will come when you will laugh with joy. God blesses you who are hated and excluded and mocked and cursed because you are identified with me, the Son of Man. When that happens, rejoice. Yes, leap for joy, for great, a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were also treated that way by your ancestors. What sorrows await you who are rich? 
for you, you have your only happiness now. What sorrows await you who are satisfied and prosperous now, for a time of awful hunger is before you. What sorrows await you who laugh carelessly, for your laughing will turn to mourning and sorrow. What sorrows await you who are pra- praised by crowds, for their ancestors also praised false prophets. At first glance, when you read through the passage, you're likely to think to yourself, what on earth is, uh, is he getting at here? You know, what's, what's, uh, kind of what's the point of this? What's so blessed about being poor or being hungry? How can you be happy and be hungry? What's so fortunate about being fearful? I've yet to come across a happy, contented, poor, hungry person. And I've also never seen a person sobbing with a smile of joy on their face. I was actually at work this week, and um, I work with three ladies. And um, it seems like probably everybody has someone in their life who at some point gets hangry. You guys familiar with hangry? when you get hungry and you get angry because your blood sugar drops really low. So I'm fortunate because Krista can get hangry, but she's very self-aware and she knows and she'll say, well before she starts to get to that state, I'm getting hungry and I need to eat. And so we're good to go there. But the ladies I work with, their significant others, they're saying that, you know, they have to carry uh, granola bars and snacks in their purses so that when their husbands or significant others start to snap at them, they can give them something because they know that they're getting hangry. But fortunately, I don't think Jesus was referring to, the, to those attitudes that we have on rare occasions when we just forget to eat or we forget to have a meal and we get hangry. What Jesus is talking about here <clears throat> through all of these things is the kingdom of heaven. He's not talking about the kingdom of heaven that we all picture in our heads where um, there's a lady in a white dress eating nice fluffy Philadelphia cream cheese on really beautiful clouds being served by a handsome angel in a loincloth. That's not the kingdom of heaven that we're talking about. We're talking about the kingdom of heaven that is actually here and now. The kingdom of heaven that was introduced when Christ died and rose again and brought the Holy Spirit so that we could all um, be a part of the kingdom through the Holy Spirit. And what he's talking about is how the kingdom of heaven actually turns everything that we think of in the world as the way to do things and turns it inside out and turns it upside down and puts it on its head. Jesus begins his Sermon on the Plain with, uh, with paradoxes, words that seem to contradict each other, and emphasizes what has always been true, that God's design for true, abundant, meaningful life goes completely against what culture tells us. Culture tells us to give, or to, to take, and Christ tells us to give when others would take. Christ tells us to love when others would hate. Christ tells us to help when others would either turn their backs or harm. And what Jesus is teaching here is that, the, that we become part of a kingdom, and when we become part of, the, part of the kingdom, we go counter to culture, and we become part of a counter-cultural kingdom community. And as a part of this community, Jesus teaches us that our attitudes towards wealth and our attitudes towards comfort and our attitudes towards power and our attitudes towards fame will completely change. What Jesus is saying that our identity establishes how we live our lives. It establishes our lifestyle. If you identify yourself as uh, Canadian or Dutch or German or Italian, that's going to affect how you view things and your outlook on life a little bit. For example, how you react to, to uh, this picture on the screen 
would be very different if you're Canadian versus if you're Swedish, the losing team, right? We would all cheer for that. Um, how you react to this next picture will be very different if you're Dutch versus if you were Spain, right? Our identity uh, does dictate how we respond and how we react in certain situations. So what Jesus is saying about our identity is that it's your sense of who you are and where your loyalties lie, and they'll determine the things that you value. They'll shape who you are. If your identity is in your nation or in the political party that you follow or your job or your wealth or your gender or your creed, then um, woe to you. You might have, pro Jesus would have problems with that. And Jesus calls us to find our significance in him, in his family, as a child of God. And that's um, one of the major issues that Jesus identifies in this part of, of, uh, of Luke, is the, distinguish the, the distinguishing between happiness and blessedness. When we find ourselves identifying with Christ, we're blessed. But um, when, we, when we try to look for happiness, and things are a little different. In, in each of these sayings of Jesus, he says, blessed are you. And many people mistakenly read this as, you'll be happy if. And, the, and, uh, and that becomes one of the biggest problems in our lives and in modern culture. We pursue happiness rather than blessedness. And so what's the difference? The difference is that happiness is often a result of the circumstances we find ourselves in. You know, we get a raise, and so we're happy. Things are going good, we're happy. We're in a good relationship right now, and we're happy. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. There's a difference. Blessedness is the result of being in a relationship with God and living our lives for him and the blessing that comes through that. So what Jesus is, is, uh, <clears throat> is teaching us is that our identity, if our significance and our happiness is rooted in the things that we can accomplish here and now, you notice that after every one of those blessings, there's a woe to, or there'll be sorrow if. If our identity and our significance is rooted in those things, then there's woe that will come. The physical, temporal uh, things that you've accomplished or acquired, that'll be your reward. That's what he's saying. There's nothing more than that. What we need to look for is a reward that goes beyond that. But when our identity and our significance is in him, not in the situations that we find ourselves in, not in the, uh, the here and now things, the things that we can acquire. When our significance is in him, that's when we, we are blessed. We're rewarded here and now through a closer relationship with him, through becoming more like him. But that reward also carries on beyond the here and now. And so Jesus goes on to outline several key ways that our lives might reflect our identity in him. And the first is through our wealth. And so in, in Luke six twenty, he says... God blesses you who are poor, for the kingdom of God is given to you. Now, if you've read or heard the Sermon on the Mount, you'll also, you probably heard something similar to that in there. And, and uh, Jesus says there, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And many people, um, they, they look at the, the two principles and they look at them as basically the same thing. And ultimately, there, there are lots of references in scripture about how if we are poor in spirit, if we're come to, come to God humble, if we humble ourselves before him and, and realize that everything we have comes from him, then definitely we are blessed. And that is definitely what Christ is talking about in Matthew. But in Luke, it's a little bit different. He doesn't say 
Uh, blessed are you who are poor in spirit. He says, he just uses the word poor. And the word that he uses for poor in Greek is actually different than um, the typical word for poor that's used. And the typical word for poor in Greek would be penes. And that describes someone who, you know, they live in pretty humble circumstances. They have to work to make ends meet. They don't have a lot of extra or any extra money to go over and above. But the word that Jesus uses here is the word tokos. And it basically describes someone who lives in abject poverty, someone who can't make ends meet because they don't have a job, they don't have a source of income. They rely totally, entirely on someone else for everything that they have. Someone that we might look at uh, and, and see if we saw a, a street person or a beggar. That's what Jesus is talking about here, not, um, not necessarily those who are poor in spirit. And so when Jesus chose this word, you can be sure that he didn't do it lightly. He chose to show that the person he would consider blessed is someone who, who likely because of their complete inability to meet their own needs, because of their inability or their, their need to rely on someone else to meet their needs, someone who's, is someone who's much more likely to recognize that uh, their physical and their spiritual needs, someone who is without pride, someone who's without self-assurance or self-reliance or self-confidence. And Jesus recognizes that it's those people who are blessed because those are the ones who are much more likely to, to turn to, to him in times of need and rely completely on him. And so Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor. But he doesn't stop there. For each of the, the, uh, the blessed people that Jesus describes, he gives a woe or a, a warning as well. Um, if, and those describe things in our lifestyle that might bring suffering or, uh, or, or mourning. And so in Luke uh, 6.24, Jesus says, What sorrow awaits you who are rich? For you have, all, you have, your, own, uh, you have for you have your only happiness now. Now clearly, doesn't, uh, Jesus doesn't simply mean if you're wealthy, you're going to be cursed. Now if you compare the abject poverty that Jesus was talking about when he used the word poor, probably most of us would have to consider ourselves wealthy in relation to that. I don't think Jesus is talking about people necessarily who are just wealthy as being those who are, who are cursed or who are mourning. Uh, Jesus blessed, or God blessed all kinds of people throughout Scripture with wealth and with the ability to, to generate wealth. But what Jesus is referring to here is if your identity, if your significance if, uh, is in your wealth, if all you care about is making money, if you're greedy or stingy, if it's all about status or possessions, if it's all about accumulation and success, if that's where you find yourself, that's when he says, woe to you, warning. Because if that's you, it's more likely that you've made accumulation of wealth the center of your identity and your existence. And so Jesus says, if that's you, woe to you, because you've already received your reward. And it's unfortunate because it's not a reward that you can take with you. And so if you think of those two scenarios, we're either wealthy or we're, at, we're really poor, you're probably thinking, what boat do I find myself in? Can't, I might not be able to identify necessarily between the two. But I think that what we can take away from Jesus' teaching is this. Whether we're rich or whether we constantly strive for more or whether we're poor and we're constantly concerned about getting out of that state, if, uh, if our focus is constantly on getting more, if our focus is constantly on money and on what money can do for us, then that's when we need to worry. I think we need to reconsider our focus. If that becomes all we're concerned about and the, and the, the thing that just 
eats our mind and our thoughts and our desires. Wealth has always been one of the things that kind of runs countercultural in Christ's kingdom. In fact, um, Jesus says in several places, if you get your money straight, if you get your wealth lined up, then you'll get pretty much everything else lined up because Jesus says that where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. Now, the next blessing that Jesus focuses on revolves around comfort. In Luke 6, 21, he says, Blessed are you if you're hungry now, for you'll be satisfied. And then in verse 25, a few short verses later, he says, A warning to those who are well-fed, because they will go hungry. And again, these verses are, are pretty similar to verses in Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And again, you could probably find some pretty significant um, similar things in both passages. Was he really referring to spiritual hunger? Again, that's, um, that's something that runs throughout Scripture. If we're hungry for more of Christ, if we're hungry for more of his word, if we're hungry for the Holy Spirit, then we will be, um, we will be blessed and we will be filled. But Luke, again, doesn't give really a hint that that's what Jesus is referring to here. Jesus actually was, um, was addressing a crowd of people who lived in an area and in a time where when they worked, the, for the most part, they weren't working to make wealth. They were working to just make, make ends meet, to, to, uh, to meet their basic needs. And oftentimes we find that Jesus is teaching before a huge crowd of people. And people would have known that when they were coming to listen to Jesus, they were setting aside a good chunk of their day to come and do that. So they were putting aside going to work, they were putting aside their daily tasks, and they were coming to listen to Jesus for the day. And I find it hard to believe that if we were talking about a bunch of people who were able to make ends meet, were able to meet all their basic needs, that they would have just forgotten to bring food along with them when they were coming to listen to Jesus for the whole day. It's much more likely that when these people came and they had no food with them, that that uh, it was because they had no food to bring along with them. And we find in several accounts throughout, uh, throughout the New Testament where Jesus actually had to perform miracles to feed these people. And uh, these are people that, that uh, you know, we, that were hungry for spiritual truth. Most of us don't really know what hunger is, but these people were hungry not only physically, but spiritually. So hungry that spiritually, that they were willing to forego working for a day, willing to help themselves make ends meet so that they could go and listen to Jesus. And so Jesus says to these people, blessed are you if you're hungry now. Blessed are you because you're coming to, to hear spiritual truth from me. Blessed are you if you're willing to consider the needs of others before yourselves. But he says, woe to you uh, if your only concern is your, is your comfort and making sure your belly is full. Woe to you who eat now and don't consider the needs of others. Woe to you if you aren't generous and don't care for the poor and don't share with those in need. Woe to you because your current comfort, that's your reward. And so Jesus says to these people, blessed if you're hungry now because you're willing to pursue me more than you're willing to pursue your hunger. Blessed are you if you're hungry because you're willing to give up a meal to provide for someone else in need. Now the next thing that Jesus says is, is to a world that does everything it can to prevent pain. He says, blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. That's a pretty significant paradox. It's as though Jesus is saying, blessed are you when you're unhappy. It's a shocking statement because we don't typically speak of grief and happiness in the same sentence. But the philosophy of the world is to do everything that we can to help 
set aside the pain and the suffering and the, the difficulties of life that we come into contact with. If you think about it, all of our thrill-seeking, all of our pleasure-hunting, all of the, our ongoing quest for entertainment is, is all expressions of a desire to escape from the hardships of life, to set those out of our minds and put them out of our thoughts. But what Jesus is saying is that blessing comes not by evading the harsh realities of life or repressing our emotions, but by facing reality, by feeling deeply and giving, to those, giving in to those feelings. If you think about um, one person in the Bible that, that is often described as someone after God's own heart, who do you think of? David. Exactly. You think of David, and when you think of David and you read the writings of David, David gives it all. If he's feeling down in the dumps, he feels that. He feels it to his very core, and he expresses that. If he's feeling great about his situation, if he's feeling great about life, he feels that, and he expresses that. And God's recognized that and said, David is a man after my own heart because he was someone who expressed his emotions when he, he, he realized his need, he realized his, his uh, shortcomings, and he mourned for those things. So Jesus is saying, again, Jesus, in, uh, in the, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus mirrors these, these, uh, these blessings, and he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And the rest of Jesus, uh, as with the rest of his, his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, this uh, can also have a spiritual meaning. We're blessed when we confront the things in life that have separated us from God and have separated us from others. And we express our true remorse and regrets about those things in those situations. Those who mourn are those who feel deep sorrow for the condition of the world, who feel deep sorrow for the spiritual condition of the people in, their li- in the lives uh, around them, and especially a deep sorrow for their own shortcomings. And Jesus says that the people who feel this deep sorrow will ultimately experience joy that comes from being in a restored relationship with him. That's the blessing that comes from mourning. He also says that those who only seek pleasure now, who seek to not experience the emotions that come along with mourning and with sorrow, and they don't look at the condition of their hearts, that they've received the reward already. And finally, Jesus speaks to the issue of power and fame. In uh, Luke 6, 22 to 23, he says, God blesses you who are hated and excluded and mocked and cursed because you've identified with me, the Son of Man. When that happens, rejoice. Yes, yes, leap for joy, for a great reward awaits you in heaven. Also, and remember, the ancient prophets were also treated that way by your ancestors. And then just a few verses later in, in verse uh, 26, he says, What sorrows await you who are praised by the crowds? For their ancestors also praised false prophets. Now, it's highly unlikely that if you're living a life to please God and you're doing everything you can to follow him, to follow Christ, that you're going to be popular by the world's standards, that you're going to be powerful or prestigious by the world's standards. As a matter of fact, if you'd lived in the time that, uh, that these words were written, it's more than likely if you lived that lifestyle, if you were following Christ and you lived a lifestyle following Christ, that you would have been uh, persecuted for your, and suffered for your beliefs and your lifestyle. And so Jesus says, Woe to you who care what others think about you and say about you. And if he was writing now, or if he was, uh, if he was preaching now, I think he would say, Woe to you 
if you're only concerned about what others Facebook about you or what they tweet about you. Woe to you if you've ever Googled yourself to see where you come up in the, in the, uh, in the search list because you want to see how popular you are. Woe to you because it doesn't matter what everyone else says about you or thinks about you. If the pl Father is pleased with you, if he loves you and he does love you, then that's where you find your security and your identity. Your identity is rooted in his affection for you, not in your performance. But woe to you if your identity is in the approval of others. Because not only have you already received your award in, the in their approval, but at some point down the road, you're going to screw up. You're going to say or do something, and they're no longer going to approve of you. And they'll probably, start to, they'll probably turn on you because fame is fleeting and approval only lasts until the next big thing. And so at the end of this, you might be left kind of scratching your head and thinking, well, if the kingdom of God is not about wealth, it's not about comfort, it's not about power or fame, then what is it about? And this is where Jesus moves into talking about the, the things in the kingdom that he truly values. It's, it's, a, it's a kingdom ethic because basically when you boil it all down, it's what the kingdom of God here and now comes down to. And that kingdom is basically ultimately about love. This isn't the end of uh, the Sermon on the Plain, and I would encourage you to read through the rest of it when you have time. But uh, this is where we'll wrap up. In Luke 6, 27 to 31, Jesus says, But if you are willing to listen, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for the, for the happiness of those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn the other cheek. If someone demands your coat, offer your shirt also. Give what you have to anyone who, seeks, who asks you for it. And when things are taken away from you, don't try to get them back. Do for others as you would have them do for you. I have to say that these are probably some of the strongest words in all of, of, uh, of the Bible. And what Jesus is saying is that take everything, everything that you hold dear, and let it go. Your wealth, your comfort, your fame, your power, let it go. Just let it go. That's what, that's what Jesus did. Jesus didn't have wealth. When Jesus came to earth, he didn't have comfort. He didn't even have a place to lay his head. He didn't have an official, official position of power. And he had fame for a moment. But as soon as things changed, as soon as people started questioning Christ, the, the same people who were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, when he rode into the city, started yelling a couple of hours later, crucify him, crucify him. And so that fame was fleeting as well. All of these things are totally self-focused. Wealth, comfort, power, fame. And what Jesus is saying is that when the kingdom came, all of those things were turned on its head. Love is focused on God and others and not on us. To boil it all down, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who mistreat you. And so I'm going to ask you to do something uh, pretty practical right now. I don't want you to walk away from here thinking, wow, that was great. I want you to stop and take a second and think. Who is your enemy? Think of, that, think of that person in your head, the person who may have done you the most harm, the person who's done you the most damage or evil, or maybe they've done injustice or caused grief or stress or strife in your life. Who is that person? 
Once you've thought of them, what are some ways, or even one way, that you can think of to love that person? Jesus then says, do good to those who hate you. Jesus said it's easy to do good to those who do good to you. Anybody can do that. It's tough to do good to those who hate you. So again, think, who is it that that might dislike you, despise you? Maybe someone who's disowned you or, or disregarded you or ignored you. Jesus says, find ways to do good for those people. Be kind to them. Perform acts of grace and mercy and kindness. And again, this is a tough, tough, tough teaching, but this is the kingdom of God here and now. It goes completely against everything that we find uh, natural, everything that we might have been taught, everything that the world would tell us to do, but it's what Christ calls us to do so his kingdom can be more fully here and now. Jesus also says to bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. Think about how hard it is when someone speaks badly of you or when you know that there's someone who who, um, who's speaking behind your back, maybe told a half-truth about you, maybe gossiped about you, maybe said things about you that weren't kind, or spread rumors. Our tendency is to defend ourselves in those situations, to, you know, get our backs up and defend ourselves. And what we're doing then is just throwing more fuel for the fire, and we make it burn hotter and, and, uh, and brighter, and makes the situation worse. So not only does Jesus say, that we should take the high road, that we should not, and it's not just ignore those things. It's not just, you know, walk away from that situation. Not just don't return negative comment for negative comment, or don't just return negative tweet for negative tweet, or criticism for criticism. Jesus goes a step further than that. He says, when it comes to those people in those situations, look at how you can bless them. Bless those people. Bless those who curse you. And finally, we should pray for those who mistreat us. I wouldn't often say that we should keep a list of people who have done wrong against us, but this is one situation where you might want to consider doing that. And not so that you can just keep track of the wrongs that they've done, but so that they're right there in front of you. The the people that have mistreated you are right there, and you can keep track of the people that you're praying for. And there's reasons why it's so important that we should pray for the people that mistreat us. Often when someone mistreats us, we get, we get hardened towards them. But if you pray for those people, our hearts can't help but to be drawn to them. We can't help but start to be restored to them and have an adi- more of an attitude of love towards those people. And when we pray for them, we want to make sure that our hearts and their hearts are right before God. So when you follow these teachings of Jesus, we... Well, we'll often see that it's the toughest, most difficult, most painful situations in life that are the opportunities for us to live out Christ's kingdom here on earth. And when we, uh, when we end up asking God, why is it that I'm being mistreated? Why is it that I'm suffering? Why is it that I'm poor or hungry or hurting or struggling? I think we'll, find, we'll end up finding God saying, blessed are you. That's a blessing. It might not be a blessing in and of itself, but it's a blessing because it's an opportunity either for you to bless someone else or for you to draw closer to me by relying entirely on me because you can't do it on your own. It's an opportunity for blessing. It's an opportunity to rely more fully on me. It's an opportunity to become much more the person who Christ intended us to be and to show us 
more of who Christ is. So every situation really comes down to your view on God. If you believe that God is a God of woes, that he's a God that only wants to give you suffering or only wants to throw things at you that are difficult in your life or only wants to give you consequences when you've done things that, uh, that haven't been right, then it, undoubtedly when tough times come, you're going to end up angry and frustrated at God. You'll turn and run from him and you'll end up suffering in despair and in desperation. But if you believe Jesus' words, blessed are you. And the words that Christ spoke here are blessings in all of the tough times. If you believe the words, blessed are you, then you'll find yourself rejoicing where you once would have despaired. You'll look for opportunities to practice the ethics and the love that's part of the kingdom of Christ. And so here's the big idea. Jesus might not ever make any of us rich. He might not ever make any of us powerful. He might not ever make any of us comfortable. He might not ever make any of us famous. And you know what? There's going to be situations where people won't be nice to you. And he's not going to make all of your troubles go away. But what Jesus does is he says that assume in your present circumstances or despite your circumstances, God wants to bless you. Assume and believe that God is good. Brian brought a word this morning that uh, God, where God said, I have a plan and a purpose and a future for you. Believe that God is good and that he's got a plan and a purpose and a future for you. Assume that God wants to bring about good in your life. And we might not see it at the present time. We might not see every situation turn out um, as we hoped it would. But we've been promised that we'll have blessing when we, when we work through those situations. We've been promised that... Uh, that all things will work out for the good of those who love him. Can I pray for you? Father, we thank you for the words that you've given us uh, through Christ and through your word. We thank you that you've given us words that um, sometimes are tough to hear, but that allow us to become uh, better followers of you, that allow us to become more like the people that you designed us to be. We thank you that... uh, that you give us the grace through the Holy Spirit to be able to live through these situations, to be able to love those who are tough to love, to be able to love those who might curse us, to be able to bless those who would curse us and pray for those who who have given us hardship. Lord, I pray that um, as we walk through this week and if we come through situations like that, that we would recall the words that uh, that you've spoken to us, that your spirit would recall those words and give us the, the grace and the love to be able to love those around us because we ask it in your name. Amen.